Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Today, I have the great pleasure of talking with Johann Norberg. Johann is a prominent libertarian scholar, the author of several books, and, among other duties, executive director of Free to Choose Media. Welcome, Johann. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation. You're joining me from Sweden, where you live, right? That's correct. Today, I want to talk to you about your show, Dead Wrong, and I want us to go over some of the most counterintuitive episodes that you've done. Before I jump in, I want to ask you something I ask everyone I interview, which is what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know but don't? That would have to be something that I didn't really realize until fairly recently in my historical studies, and that's how fragile human progress is. Uh, I think we've seen the most amazing progress when it comes to health matters, economics, uh, reduction of poverty, human freedom that the world has ever seen over the last few decades. But we also see this throughout history, that there are periods of dramatic, rapid progress, but it can be destroyed if it's not fought for, if political institutions, if the general culture doesn't approve of that freedom and that cultural atmosphere, um, it can rapidly be turned into something else entirely, often in times of crisis, uh, foreign threats, natural disasters, or a pandemic. Then people want a strong leader to protect them, a big government to solve all their problems. And that has unfortunately been the end of many great episodes of human progress in history. Uh, so that's something we all have to concern ourselves with so that we make sure that we don't undermine the progress that that's possible. Interesting. I don't think many people my age would have any idea that that's something they should be aware of, but maybe now they'll think about it. Now I want to turn to your video series called Dead Wrong. Each video is no longer than two minutes, but they each contain a ton of information. So first, can you tell me why you started doing this series? Yeah, this was, in a way, it's a way of um, challenging common wisdom on different matters, because I often have this sense that the popular take and the general story in the media is has things wrong or at least important parts and bits and pieces of it completely wrong and it's important to challenge that but i also wanted to do it for people with a very short attention span so that you wouldn't have to listen for more than say two minutes to at least get a different perspective and the idea was not to change people's mind but at least to open up their minds to the 
possibility that there is another perspective on the concerns of the day and that if they're interested, there is much more information to look at. The series is running on the Free to Choose Network, named after the book by Milton and Rose Friedman, Free to Choose. The book came out in 1980 and was meant for a popular audience, and according to Wikipedia, it showcases, quote, how free markets work best for all members of a society, provides examples of how the free market engenders prosperity, and maintains that it can solve problems where other approaches have failed, end quote. Your work, Johan, is clearly in the tradition of Milton Friedman in that it often highlights productive powers of free markets and free trade. How have you been influenced by Milton Friedman? Well, I've been very much influenced by Milton Friedman, um, but let me make a small confession. It is not always in the, the method, the scientific method that Milton Friedman used. It's, He's very much, I would say, in the mainstream of economics, in neoclassical economics. When it comes to learning economics, I was a bit more influenced by the Austrian school of economics. Uh, economists like von Mises and Hayek, who um, had, I think, in many ways, a, a broader perspective on human action than most neoclassical economists. But that being said, Friedman has inspired me tremendously in so many ways, and specifically as a freedom fighter, as a classical liberal who championed, always believed in, in the human ability and what it can create when, when being free. So watching his TV series, Free to Choose, reading that book and his other books and his column, I got this appreciation for a tr fantastic communicator who could take quite difficult concepts of uh, human action and economic freedom and put them in very simple and persuasive um, examples and, and images. And, and that has had a, a great influence on me. When I, I learned stories also about how people who fought for their freedom in the then communist bloc in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain weren't allowed to um, hear anything about a challenge to the system, but they got these um, copies of Milton Friedman's books that had been smuggled into their countries, and they let the, read them by candlelight during night hours, learning that something else is possible than oppression, dictatorship, and the planned economy. And it inspired a whole generation of reformers who changed their countries for the better. You have several episodes on Dead Wrong on Sweden. I assume this is partly because in the past few years, Sweden has received a lot of attention from Bernie Sanders, who nearly became the presidential nominee for the Democratic Party this year in the United States. He's also a self-described social democrat and has praised your country as being a kind of socialist paradise that he'd like to achieve in America. And looking from the outside, Sweden seems like a good place to live. You guys are pretty healthy, rich, peaceful. There's Volvo, Ikea, Pippi Longstockings, ABBA, all Swedish things, very well known around the world. My first question on this is, is Sweden a socialist country? Well, this is starting to sound a little bit like a commercial for Sweden. Move to Sweden. <laughs> Thank you for all the nice words. And I do agree. There are a lot of good things to be said uh, about Sweden. Um, 
and they are not uh, here because of socialism in any way. One simple way of uh, bashing that myth is to look at the descendants of Swedes who live in America. Some five million of them uh, are now live in the United States. And they are also healthy, wealthy, a very low level of poverty, and they actually have a higher degree of interpersonal trust than the Swedes in Sweden do. So, And they've lived under a very different economic system than Swedes in Sweden. So <laughs> there's got to be something else that was done in Sweden before they left for America, often some 100, 140 years ago. And that's really a system that was built on openness, on economic openness and political openness. And that turned Sweden into one of the richest countries on the planet a long time before we began to experiment with socialism and the welfare state in the 1970s and 1980s. And many people's perception of Sweden, including Bernie Sanders, is stuck in the 1970s. That's, that's what you all remember. You remember ABBA and socialism because that's what we did in the 70s. Um, but we th that was the period, the one period in Swedish modern history, actually, where we lagged behind other countries, where we, we had increased taxes and public spending and regulation. And for 25 years, there was no increase in incomes in Sweden. We didn't create a single net job in the Swedish economy. We didn't, and, and the famous companies that you think of as Swedish, they left Sweden at this time. IKEA moved away, Tetra Pak moved away, Bjorn Borg, our famous tennis player, moved to Monaco. Ingmar Bergman, the great theater and filmmaker, moved to um, uh, Germany. So this was really, in a way, our Atlas Shrugged moment of Swedish history. The entrepreneurs, the innovators, they left. And after that happened, we learned our lesson, and so did Swedish Social Democrats, and began to reform the economy, liberalize it, lower taxes, reduce the size of government, deregulate the economy. And um, that was the moment when we started once again to grow faster than the rest of the world. So now for 25 years, we've increased incomes by some 70% in Sweden. It's been a great success story precisely because we moved away from that failed socialist experiment. So what were some of the consequences other than all these like famous companies and people leaving Sweden in that time? What are the consequences on the ordinary person when these more socialist regulations and policies were in place? Well, one of them was obviously that it got increasingly difficult for people to, to start businesses or to uh, make a better life for themselves by getting a longer education, working harder and, and longer and so on. Very high taxes made it impossible for people to, to save uh, much money or, or anything like that to change their life circumstances. And one really horrible things, thing that uh, was the result of this was um, we used to pride ourselves in having a very strong work ethic and a very strong degree of trust in authorities and in your neighbors and so on in Sweden. This model began to change that uh, because that came from uh, someplace when people thought that they, yes, they're always going to work hard and they will not accept a public benefit, even if they were entitled to it. That was because they had grown up in a system that had been 
had a very small government and strong incentives for work and entrepreneurship for 100 years, basically. When that changed, well, then even this um, this uh, uh, changed. And one thing you could see was that the number of people who said in polls that they thought that it was okay, acceptable to lie to get a public benefit increased from less than 5% of Swedes to around half of Swedes uh, during this period. Um, we had a very generous sick leave benefit from the government uh, for a long time. And one result was that the, objectively speaking, perhaps healthiest population on the planet was suddenly off sick from work more than any other population on the planet. And specifically, they were off sick, we were off sick during great sports events. So when we had the sort of international soccer uh, league um, championships, then suddenly sick leave for men increased by almost 50%. And that tells you that something was wrong. People started to abuse the system. People started to um, erode all those aspects of uh, morality and behavior that once made Sweden rich. Wow. So Sweden then reformed its system, right, around the 1990s. And it put in some reforms that Bernie Sanders wouldn't really like like reduction of public spending, social security reform, privatiz privatization of the National Railroad Network, and they cut in the tax on capital. Um, Sweden has also implemented a school choice program. Can you tell us about some of these reforms and the impacts that it's had on Sweden and the economy? Yeah, you're quite right. It was a very tense reform period during the 1990s in Sweden and partly because the old system failed dramatically. We lagged behind other countries for 20 years in our growth rates um, and then it all ended in a terrible financial crisis in the early 1990s and it was so brutal that for a short period of time the Swedish central bank implemented a, an interest rate at 500 percent to defend the Swedish currency that was collapsing at the time. So 500%, which is pretty brutal. And at that time, um, one observer said that the Swedish system, we have to realize that this, this experiment with democratic socialism was unsustainable, absurd, rotten, and perverse. And that person was the social democratic minister of finance, Kjell-Olof Felt. And that tells you something about how the consensus rapidly changed in Sweden. From the left to the right, everybody realized that we had to reform. So what they did was that, um, first of all, opening up the economy to a, a large extent, privatizing many public companies, deregulating uh, product markets so that it was very easy to start new businesses, and but you wouldn't get any subsidies, so you had to work hard. More free trade than we had had before. Abolish the kind of occupational licensing that's still very frequent in um, common in the United States, for example. But we also reformed the welfare state. Uh, I think that one of the most important one was changing the social security system uh, of, of pension benefits, because that was a system that was rapidly deteriorating and would soon go bust because of demographic changes in a pay-as-you-go system. There weren't enough uh, young workers to pay for all the retirees. 
So what they did was that they reformed it uh, from a system where you defined the benefits that you would get as you got old to a system where you define the contributions. And if the economy changes for the better, you'll get more pension benefits. If it so, if there's a lower uh, growth rate, then you'll get less, which means that it is economically sustainable uh, for the long run, uh, apart from many other uh, social security systems like the American one that's not that's not reformed at all. And it also included some uh, part privatization with individual accounts that people can invest in the in the stock markets. We um, introduced some competition in the public system, in the welfare system, like a national school voucher system, so that private schools get the same kind of funding as the public schools do. And parents and children can pick a school and um, anyone basically can start a school, including a for-profit for uh, business. And we abolished some of the taxes that uh, had ruin the economy, lowering marginal income tax rates and abolishing taxes on, and Bernie Sanders would really not like this, abolishing taxes on property, on wealth, on gifts and inheritance. And one of the results was that a country that had grown almost 1% slower than other rich economies uh, for 20 years suddenly grew almost 1% faster every year. And it quickly turned Sweden around into a successful economy once again. Wow, that's, I don't think Bernie Sanders would like that. <laughs> um, so about the school voucher system and stuff, how, so basically, how does that work? Like, do kids just choose? Yes, they just choose and uh, well obviously with their parents involved in that decision and they can choose any school school anywhere in the country uh, which where they want to go often obviously close to the home but it means for example that we don't see the perverse effects that we used to have in Sweden once upon a time and you actually still do in the United States that property house uh, property prices close to a good school uh, jump dramatically so that you will have kids within that the vicinity of that school and you can send them there uh, even just sort of divided by one road and this demarcation on a map you belong to a good school then house prices dramatically higher uh, compared to the other side of, of that road no instead you can pick any school anywhere in the the country to go to and that then, then money follows the pupil. So the school only gets the funding if they have children uh, choosing that school. And obviously there's sometimes a, a space limitation so that they can't accept everybody, but specifically for bis uh, schools owned by businesses, they rapidly scale up uh, when they are very popular, which means that often best practice uh, schools, those who are most popular, they will see, they expand and they see what they do being imitated by others. And um, and then other schools are going to have to keep up with it and constantly think about how to attract um, kids to their school, because otherwise they won't get that funding. Wow, I feel like that's 
it just seems good. I don't know. Um, you recently had an episode on Dead Wrong called Coronavirus and Globalization. This seems very timely, not only because we're in the middle of a pandemic, but globalization and trade have been under attack for several years. And specifically by Trump and his trade advisor, Navarro, um, now both of them are arguing that globalization, free trade, and airline deregulation are to blame for the virus, and they impact our lives badly. Can you explain to us why this is wrong? Yeah. Well, Trump and Navarro, they're really dead wrong when it comes to this for, for several reasons. Um, they use this instinctual sense that we have that you know, viruses, they come from somewhere. They come from somewhere else. So we should probably not go there. We should we shouldn't want to want people to move about too much or fly to the other side of the planet. And in a way, obviously, we do carry lots of microorganisms as we travel around the world. But as researchers at um, Stanford and Tel Aviv University have uh, shown, when we travel around the world and share viruses and bacteria with others, this also creates some cross-immunity against new strains of the same disease. Because most diseases, they are just a new version of the old one, just separated by a couple of few mutations. Um, so if you've had the previous one, it might give you immunity against the next one. And what these researchers have shown is that when it comes to flu, that um, we have more through globalization. We share these flu viruses constantly, and that has created cross-immunity so that no particular strain can evolve in isolation for a sufficient period of time so that they then explode across the world, killing millions. And their theory is that one reason why we haven't had a new episode of um, similar to the Spanish flu that we had in 1918, which killed probably more than 50 million people around the world, is probably globalization and the jet engine. It saved millions and millions of life through this cross-immunity. And now that doesn't necessarily help us when there's a completely new disease coming, jumping across the species barrier, perhaps from bats when it comes to the coronavirus. But even here, globalization is the solution rather than the problem because we have always had pandemics like that throughout history, and they've usually been devastating because even though they moved slower back in the time when we didn't have airplanes or subways or buses or anything like that, they moved slow, but they moved steadily. And they moved over the world over a couple of years, and then they returned in new waves until they had picked us off one by one, every single vulnerable person, because we couldn't strike back. It's only because we have modern globalization and modern wealth, the scientific and technological breakthroughs that this has made possible, that gives us a fighting chance against the virus. It makes it possible for researchers and um, drug companies to cooperate across borders and read the genome of the virus in a manner of days, something we couldn't even do before 1995. So suddenly, um, the virus is up against the best brains on the planet, and they are now connected to one another, constantly sharing information, 
sharing best practice, sharing information on the virus and on new therapeutics and possible drugs and vaccines to deal with it. Uh, you know, when it comes to smallpox and polio, it took mankind 3,000 years to develop a vaccine against it. Now, just three months, not 3,000 years, just three months after we heard about the coronavirus, we already have hundreds of potential drugs and vaccines that are already in clinical trial. So I would say that if we had to pick one year in human history uh, to have a pandemic, if you really had to, uh, so far, the best year for mankind is 2020, because we have more resources and abilities at our disposal than ever before. I think now is a good time for you to lay out more arguments for globalization. I know in your book, um, In Defense of Global Capitalism, you defended capitalism. Yeah, global capitalism, globalization. But um, what are other arguments for why it's so good, why it's helpful? And have you changed your mind in the answer to this question in any way since the book was published nearly 20 years ago? Well, my basic take is that um, even if you happen to be the smartest person in the room, <laughs> the room is small wherever you are. Uh, the more access you have to the brains of other people, their ideas, their knowledge, their scientific understanding, their technological innovations, and the goods and services they produce, the more access you have to that, the better off you are. Um, and that is really what globalization is about. That's what global capitalism is about, being able to cooperate with others, uh, getting their best ideas and goods and services in exchange for your best ideas, goods and services, so that we specialize and make use of more brains. So it's really uh, strength in numbers, in a way. Uh, when we, sh the more people who cooperate, the more things we will be able to create. And we see this in just looking at the data on what has happened in the world. We've seen more progress in the last 20 years on the planet than in the 20,000 years before. Uh, we've reduced extreme poverty since 1990 from some 37% of the world population to less than 9% of the world population today, which means that every day during these last 25 years, 140,000 people were lifted out of extreme poverty. And that's because they got greater freedom to start businesses, to get an education, to get access to technologies developed in other places, and to trade and exchange across borders, and so become wealthier and feed their kids and put them to school and lead a better life. That's really what globalization and, and global capitalism is about, being able to create a better life for the next generation. And have I changed my mind about that? Uh, I have not. I think we've seen, when I wrote that book, as you said, it's some 20 years ago, the one thing that I've had to do when I've revised the book for new editions is that I've had to update the statistics and I, it's difficult to keep up with it because it has improved so much faster than I thought uh, than it had when I wrote the book. So the numbers are in constantly how we... Uh, um, 
how we save lives through through global capitalism. Child mortality since 1990 has been halved, which means that six million kids would have died this year had we had wow. the, had we had the kind of situation that we had in 1990. If we didn't have this kind of distribution of wealth, of technologies, of scientific knowledge across borders, six million kids' lives saved every year. Wow. Now I want to turn to the topic of organic farming. I remember reading an article not too long ago about how plastic bags were not as bad for the environment as paper or fabric bags. Plastic bags are bad, don't get me wrong. When they're not in landfills, they block storm drains, they contaminate oceans, and can kind of kill marine life and other animals. But paper bags are just as bad, depending on the problem, the environmental problem that you're concerned about. I was kind of shocked because it seems from the arguments of others that plastic is the only bad thing, that paper can't do anything bad. So this is why I was interested in your episode on organic farming is a replacement for traditional farming where there are pesticides and fertilizers. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, no, that's a really good point because often when we think about environmental issues and the future of the planet, we tend to have a an aesthetic perspective on things. We think that if it looks good, if it's a brown paper bag rather than a plastic artificial one, it should be better somehow. If we have organic farming, it seems so natural. We're not using these artificial pesticides and fertilizers and, and things like that. So it looks good. So we think it is good. And that's a terrible perspective uh, to have. It's, it's natural why we have it, but it's all wrong because the traditional the word traditionally the worst threat to human life and our in our environment was nature because it can throw up horrible consequences uh, and especially if we pollute it in a natural way through things like um, uh, not having um, water toilets and indoor plumbing for example or for that matter, uh, no um, natural gas or electricity, so that we had to burn solid fuels indoors, uh, creating pollution that kills, destroys the lungs and kills millions around the world. That kind of natural pollution is often much, much worse than modern technology. So your your question about organic farming is that's important because that's one of the things. It looks so natural; it should be good. The problem is that all those unnatural looking artificial fertilizers and pesticides and the high yielding crops raise farm production dramatically. And if we discard with them, we need much more land to compensate for this shortfall. Uh, so we need to turn more wildlife into, well, under the plow, turn it into farmland to uh, feed all these mouths around the world. And there are many problems with that for biological diversity and for um, uh, actually, when it, in these pandemic times, we should talk about also how then we get closer to the nature's reservoirs of uh, viruses in, in um, particular species like bats and, and so on. But it's also bad for issues like global warming, because if we need more land to compensate for the shortfall, which um, organic farming needs, well, then we also um, have to take 
new land, up to five times more land than we currently rely on. According to one study of England and Wales, if they were to go organic in their farming, it would slash yields by roughly 40%. And then they would have to get organic farmland up to five times more land than they currently rely on in new places. So we would lose grassland. And that's a very important storage of carbon. And that carbon would instead be released into the atmosphere. And this one study that I looked at showed that a total conversion to organic farming in England and Wales would increase overall greenhouse gases from their farms by 21%. So it's not good just because it looks good. Wow. that That's very counterintuitive. I feel like people don't question what either what they're told or what they think and they they don't so they don't understand arguments that don't seem direct they don't directly make sense you have to think about it a little bit more i have one more question before we end and it's about how a year ago you received the julian simon award from the competitive enterprise institute um, I watched your acceptance speech, and you talk about how Julian Simon is a personal hero of yours, one who converted you into an optimist. Can you explain to my listeners who may not know who he is, why you admire him so much? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, because yes, I used to be a, a pessimist for, for many reasons. I didn't think that we would be able to create a decent future for mankind, partly because I saw this environmental destruction going on around the world. Um, but Julian Simon, he was the a development economist and thinker about issues like innovation and entrepreneurship, who explained to me in a way that really profoundly uh, had a profound impact on me that the most important resources in the world are not the ones underground. It's not minerals and metals and stuff like that. It's the human brain. It is the individual human being. Because as long as that our brains are, as long as as many people as possible are free to explore new knowledge and experiment with it with new technologies and and business models, then we'll make better use of all the um, the goods, all the resources that are at our disposal. And that made me realize that um, I used to think that we cannot have growth going on forever. We'll run out of, of resources. His point was that growth is not really a way of um, making dishes and meals by putting more ingredients into the stew constantly. If that were the case, there, there would be natural limits to growth. His point was that growth is better combinations of the resources that are at our disposal. And often that means that we don't have to use as many resources as we did before, uh, but it'll create more of it and it'll hopefully be better, cheaper, more... Um, uh, healthy for us and that's indeed what we've seen around the world since that we've created more wealth than ever before uh, in the last few decades reduced poverty more than ever but we've actually started to turn the corner when it comes to our resource consumption when it comes to the things that we're digging out of the ground to create what we need because of smarter ingenious 
processes of, of uh, production because of uh, smarter material and hybrid material that we didn't have before. And because of this, we could also then improve human living conditions better than ever before, reduce global hunger, reduce global poverty, and um, make sure that, as uh, he put it somewhere, Julian Simon, that a child born today has a greater chance of reaching his retirement day than children in previous generations had of reaching their fifth birthday. And that kind of optimism, that belief in the you in human beings and their ability to innovate themselves out of of every problem we had that has guided me ever since thank you so much this is great i feel like there's a lot of counterintuitive stuff and sweden is interesting um thank you so much and if you haven't seen dead wrong go watch it because it'll make you think thank you Thank you, Juliet.